0: And so let us hear God's word, Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and his righteousness endures forever. He has made his wonderful works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and gracious. And full of compassion. He has given food to those who fear him. He will ever be mindful of his covenant. He has declared to his people the power of his works in giving them the heritage of the nations. The works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding. Have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Well, as we begin here this morning... Um, it's been kind of fun, I guess you could say, to, to come to this psalm because this was a psalm that I was assigned when I was in seminary. And so the one semester we had to preach three different times, and this was one that was assigned to me. And so it's interesting to reflect back on that now 25 years ago or whatever. And um, I remember thinking then, um, and I had to do the whole psalm in one week, And I remember thinking how filled to the brim it was, how dense and compacted with with, uh, reasons why we should praise our God. Um, Well, last time we started the psalm looking at verse 1. And the reason why I wanted to dwell on it is because this is the focus of book 5, and that is praising our God, this call to worship. Uh, just a, a few brief numbers here. The, the two key Hebrew words for praise, the one is hallel, right? We get hallelujah. It's used 94 times in the Psalms, and 58 of them are in book 5. So 62% about are here in this book. And then you add hallelujah to that, okay? 26 of the 31 times are in book 5. The other key word is Yadah, we get Judah from it, uh, 67 times in the Psalms, 27 of them are in book 5. Not quite as big a percentage, but twice as many as any of the other books. Book 2 has the second most. And so because of this emphasis on praise, Psalm 107 started with it here in book 5. And you might remember the praise refrain four times we see it there in the psalm. Psalm 108, remember, is a combination of two psalms, and it took the praise part of those psalms and put it together. Well, we come here to Psalm 111, and now Psalms 111 to 117 are all about praising our God, hallelujah, over and over again. And so we have this call to worship in Book 5, this challenge to improve our worship, And so I've talked about it, but now here, especially with Psalm 111, and especially as we come to the term hallelujah, I've expanded upon it uh, and did so last week. Simply, we must improve our worship. We must challenge ourselves to do it more and to not use excuses not to worship in the way that God calls us to worship. But as I also mentioned last time, this is the greatest thing that we can do. Far greater than our work, far greater than our relationships, far greater than any other good thing. Worshiping our God, first catechism question, right? To, to give glory to our God and enjoy him forever, this is the greatest thing that we can do. And there are many blessings when we do it with our whole heart, mind, will, and emotion. And so as we saw last week, then the psalmist is calling us to do this as individuals, but also to do it corporately to do it with all that we have. All right, now, since we started uh, a new psalm, uh, obviously, I reviewed uh, Palmer Robertson's stuff last time like I usually do, but because we started a subsection, I spent uh, a little bit more time on, about five minutes looking at that, spent a few minutes looking at the broad view of Psalm 11. a few minutes talking about acrostics, and then I started the psalm, and I spent uh, about nine minutes looking at this term, hallelujah, And then we looked at the rest of uh, uh, verse 1. You remember, as I I mentioned, this term hallelujah, we use very casually. uh, But in the scriptures, it's very specific. It's like a formal term. It's like a doxology, as we would call it in our worship. And we've sung one already, and we'll do the other one at the end of our service. Well, with all this emphasis on praise... Now Psalm 111 moves our attention to the content of our worship and, of course, the object of our worship, and that is God, who he is, and what he has done. So if you look on the back side of your handout here for Psalm 111, just a moment, uh, call your attention again to the broader structure, right? We, we've got to look at the big picture, right? We're, we're focusing on individual verses, but the big picture, as I show you, Uh, these outlines, as we look at Palmer Robertson's summary, as we look at other passages, it gives us the big picture as we also look at the individual um, verses and words. So here, the big picture, I mentioned last time that the first outline might be the best one because it's kind of hard to subdivide it. Um, Verse 10 does kind of stand out uh, with the fear of the Lord. So maybe we can separate that. Um, Basically, I'm going to follow the third one. Last week we looked at verse 1, today we'll look at verses 2 to 6, and then verses 7 to 10. And the reason why I'm doing it and breaking it here is that if you look on the other side now of your handout, look at verse 2, we see the word works, and then if you come down to verse 6, you see the word works. Kind of gives us a structural uh, divide there, because then in verse 7 we have the word works and precepts, and then if you look at verse 10... You see that in the second line, the uh, pronoun them, that refers back to the works and precepts in verse 7. So uh, because of that, that's how I'm um, subdividing it here for my sermons, verses 2 to 6 and verses 7 to 10. All right, so here's a little bit of the big picture, the forest, we might call it. So let's now look at a few of the trees here today. Verse 2, great are the works of Yahweh being inquired about by all of those who delight in them. All right. Now, as I mentioned last time, this is an acrostic. So uh, each subsequent letter of the Hebrew alphabet begins each line. So last week in verse 1, let me praise Yahweh with all my heart, that begins with the first Hebrew letter, Aleph. The next line begins with the second letter, Beit, the B sound or the V sound. And then in verse 2 now, The first line begins with the third letter, which is gimel. It's the G sound. Gedolim is the word here, and we actually can, in English, say great. We can start this one with a G sound, too. And so great are the works of Yahweh. Now, when we think of the works of Yahweh, usually we are summarizing them in three categories. We have the works of creation, we have the works of providence, and we have the works of redemption. typically how we summarize God's works. Now, we can subdivide that about the works of creation, providence, of redemption. So now as you read the rest of the psalm, which one is emphasized? Well, there's nothing else in the psalm that talks about the work of creation. Now, if you look at verse 5, it talks about food. So maybe we could talk about providence, God providing food for us. But it fits better for us to think of the work of redemption here in Psalm 111. Look at verse 9. The word is used. A redemption he sent. Look uh, at verse 6 about the inheritance of the nations. So you have the conquest uh, idea there. In verses 7 and 8, this talks about God's law. So Mount Sinai. And then in verse 5, we have his covenant. And in verse 9, we have his covenant. So because of these things, and even the word food, Uh, Our attention is drawn to the Exodus, God bringing his people out of Egypt to Mount Sinai and to the Promised Land. Now, we can say God's works are great in all kinds of other things, but the psalm is emphasizing this, and so that'll be our focus as well. Now, you might remember, I said last time, that, that this section of psalms, Psalms 111 to 117, are often called the Egyptian Hallel, Is Psalm 114 speaks about the Exodus, and right here, we have these allusions to the Exodus, so the Egyptian hollow. So great are the works, especially the works of redemption, of Yahweh. Now, you remember from last time, or you see on the other side, the only name of God used in this Psalm is Yahweh. You have the short form, Yah, but we have the name of our covenant Lord. And again, very fitting to use that name in the context of redemption. He is the one who has entered into relationship with us. He is the one who has made these promises and fulfilled them for us. And so these works especially are great, are awe-inspiring, are marvelous, are wondrous. Now, yeah, we can look at the stars and praise God for those great works and so on, but, but this is the emphasis. So, the next line then starts with the next Hebrew letter, Dalit, So we get the D sound here. Being inquired about by all of those who delight in them. So note two ideas here in this line. True believers delight in God's works. All of them, but again, especially redemption. We rejoice, we celebrate, it excites us. Okay? And then we inquire about them. And so we examine We study the works of God, again, especially the work of redemption. Now, it's okay for us, obviously, to enjoy other things in life. We can enjoy various foods or our relationships, certain kinds of entertainment or going on a hike or some hobby that we have or the work that we do. We can enjoy those things. That's fine. That's good. But we especially enjoy and delight in the works of God. Likewise, true believers... Enjoy um, studying things, right? We, we, We can study science or math or English or history or even politics and sports and so on and so forth. But for the true believer, what should occupy our time and attention most in our study is the word of God and the things that God has done, especially in redemption. And so reading his word, studying it, memorizing it, meditating upon it, Or you could translate this word here to inquire as searching out or investigating. He ponder it and so forth. Now, we do this every Sunday for roughly two hours or something with Sunday school and both sermons, morning and evening. And we are learning more about God's word. We are pondering these things. We are investigating these things because we delight in God's word. And, of course, we can talk about a variety of things. Um, here, we're focusing on redemption and God. Um, but these are things that we need to be doing every day. We need to spend some time every day delighting in God's redemption. Sometimes you hear people say we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And, and I think there's there's some... Uh, helpfulness in that that we 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 stop every day and ponder how god has saved such a miserable sinful wretch like i am and he has done all these things in christ and so we delight in that we investigate those things so read the scriptures not just here on sunday but during the week read commentaries use study guides listen to sermons online or podcasts or a radio program. Now, of course, we need to be discerning. Not all of them are very good, Um, but there are some that are good. Now, being a pastor has uh, a lot of challenges, but in some ways, I've got the best job in the world because you're paying me to investigate the scriptures, to dwell on these things, and to delight in these things. It's, It's it's such a blessing, and then I can take a few moments. I spend, you know, probably twenty hours preparing for a sermon like this today, and I share a few thoughts with you for about forty minutes. Um, it's it's such a great thing, but but we all should do this to some degree. And so, because the works of Yahweh are great, God's people delight in studying and learning more about these things. Now, um. One commentator said the opposite. He said, those who don't do it are disobedient at the very least. And they're being stupid, blind, and unbelieving. He was quite blunt. <laughs> but really, in the end, it is. It's stupidity for us not to dwell on the things that God has done for us. But because they are great, right, we give Praise to our Lord here. Hallelujah. All right. Well, let's keep going then to the next verse. Majesty and splendor is his deed and his righteousness is standing forever. All right. Now, you remember I mentioned last week that verses one to eight have two lines apiece. Verses nine and 10 have three lines to get all the uh, 22 Hebrew letters. That's how they've done it. And every line has either three words or four words in the Hebrew. Okay, so verse 2 had 3, now here verse 3 has three words apiece, again, in the Hebrew. So the, the first line then begins with the Hebrew letter hey, that gives us the H sound. So we translate it as majesty and splendor is his deed. Now you're like, that's, that sounds kind of awkward, and it's for two reasons. First of all, the word deed is singular, so that's kind of awkward. And then majesty and splendor are actually nouns. And we expect to have adjectives there. So your translations typically do that. New King James uh, says it this way. His work is honorable and glorious. And so they make adjectives out of it. It's more natural for us. All right, now, in verse 2, we just talked about works, plural. In verses 6 and 7, works, plural. Verse 4, notice wonders is plural. Verse 7, precepts. That word is plural, but here it's singular, deed. So the author here, we don't know who it was. Maybe it was Ezra, maybe it was Haggai or Zechariah, whoever it was that wrote this here, again, most likely after the exile. He has one deed in mind in particular that is filled with majesty and splendor. Well, again, in light of what I showed you a little bit ago, Right? Redemption in verse 9, the conquest, and these kind of things. It seems like the deed that he specifically has in mind is the deed of the Exodus and all that went with that. Okay? Again, we could talk about all of his works, but this one is uh, the emphasis. And so God's work of redemption, that particular deed, bringing Israel out of Egypt, is majestic, he says. It is splendorous. It is glorious. This word emphasizes weight. So you could say honor, significance. Now, this particular word is what we see, um, at least one of them. There are other words, but in, in the book of Exodus, remember, it talks about Pharaoh's heavy heart and that God is heavy. He is weighty. And and, and so that idea, this word seems to be used to call our attention back to that. Now, the second word here, uh, splendor, uh, this emphasizes appearance. So the New King James uses the term glorious. You might say the wow factor. But both of them are terms that are typically used of kings. And so our God is king. His work of redemption is the work of our king for us, on our behalf. And so he is worthy of our praise. Now notice then how God's work tells us about who he is. If his work is majesty and splendor, then God surely is filled with majesty and splendor. They reflect his character. All right, let's take a moment and turn to 2 Corinthians and chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, obviously, Psalm 11 is going to refer to the key redemptive event, and that is the exodus. But Paul says this, 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7. But if the ministry of death written and engraved on stones was glorious, right? Psalm 111 verse 3. So that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. Remember, Moses went up to get the law and his face was shining, so he covered it and so forth. Verse 8, How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Now, remember, Paul often is dealing with the Judaizers who were trying to elevate the Old Testament too highly. And he says, wait a second, the Old Testament is glorious, right? That's true. But compared to Christ, it's not glorious at all. So he's overstating it to some degree. But again, you see the comparison. The deed of the exodus was glorious and all that went with that. But the deed of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, that's even more glorious. That is even more majestic. And so we praise Yahweh for the exodus. We praise Yahweh for our redemption in Christ. And so this isn't just because we live on this side of the cross, but do you see the the, the lesser and the greater distinctions here? All right, well, let's come back to Psalm 111, and the the next line here in verse 3. This one begins with the the Hebrew letter, wow, some pronounce it vav. The modern Hebrew will use a V sound instead of a W sound, and that's the conjunction. And his righteousness is standing forever. All right, now notice now that the focus shifts to God's character. That was assumed... In his deed, right? We learn who God is based on what he does. But now it's specifically stated his character, his righteousness. And so God rules over all. It's emphasis here on his law. And so when we talk about God's righteousness, we talk about him judging the wicked. So obviously here the initial uh, idea is that he judged the Egyptians. He judged the Canaanites. Even Israel at times. Golden calf and so on. And as we think of Christ coming, of course, Satan is judged. Uh, All evil is judged in principle at his first coming, in its fullness when he comes back. And so his righteousness is standing forever. And we see that especially in redemption. But it's not just that he judges the wicked. His righteousness is also then shown in how he has saved his people. His wrath is not poured on us, it's poured on a substitute. We are declared to be righteous, not because we are, but because the substitute was perfect in our place. Our sins are forgiven. And so in the Old Covenant, obviously, we have the Passover lamb, we have the sacrifices in general, and all of that points to Christ, who fully and completely then did this for us. So here a couple of weeks ago, we had a Reformation celebration, and I focused our attention on justification. This is the idea, right? His righteousness, including justification, is standing forever. And so this is why we should hallelujah. We should praise Yahweh. All right, much more we could say. Let's keep going. Verse 4, a remembrance he made in regard to his wonders, gracious and compassionate is Yahweh. Now, one of the things about acrostics is they want you to just look at one line at a time. Okay, They want you to stop mid-sentence because they want you to focus, on this case, on the Zion line. That's the Z sound. Okay? So, a remembrance he made in regard to his wonders. All right. Now, <clears throat> the New King James kind of smooths that out and makes a noun, a verb there. You kind of miss the, some of the point. Um, a remembrance, note singular, he made and regard to his wonders. A memorial, you could say. Now, what is intended here? Well, in light of the food in the next verse, and the conquest, and redemption, and all these sort of things, I think the intention here is, we're talking about the different feasts and festivals that God established for Israel. In particular, the Passover. Because, of course, in the Passover, they remembered the act of redemption. Now, at the, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, they, uh, initially it was a harvest uh, festival, and then they added the remembering of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai later on. And, of course, now we think of the Holy Spirit coming. Um, at the Feast of Booths with the Day of Atonement, they would remember being in the wilderness. So all three feasts are reminding them of these things. But the fact that it's a remembrance, it sounds like one in particular is in mind, and the Passover would make sense here in this context. Now, of course, God has made a remembrance for us, hasn't he? Right, right here, we, we have communion. In our church, of course, we do it once a month. And so once a month, we have a remembrance, a memorial. And God made it for us, right? We, we didn't just come up with this idea. God gave it to us in the scriptures. And so uh, he made it in regard to his wonders, the wonders of redemption. We remember when we come for communion. Now, we also remember at Christmas time the birth of Christ, and, and then at what we call Easter time, the death and resurrection of Christ, which obviously fits with communion. But in our church, I like how we combine the birth of Christ with having communion that night, not just on Monday, Thursday, or something like that. Um, but we are remembering, and God helps us then by giving us this remembrance of His great works. We are prone to forget, we are prone to get busy, we are prone to focus on the things of this life, hey, okay, falling into sin and so forth. But He helps us to remember His wonders. Now, this word "wonders," you might recall. Uh, is the one we saw in Psalm 107. In that refrain, we saw it over and over again, same word here. And so there it emphasized the wonder of coming back to the promised land. This one is emphasizing coming to the promised land to begin with. There in the Exodus and so forth. And so God gave us this remembrance, not just to fill our minds, but to actually do something. We eat and drink, and as Israel came to Jerusalem and so forth. All right, now the second line uh, here in verse 4 begins with the Hebrew letter chet. So it's, a, it's not an H, but a ch kind of sound. So gracious and compassionate is Yahweh. All right, now in verse 3, we saw his character, right? His righteousness. Well, here now it is again gracious and compassionate. Let's come back to Exodus now, chapter 34. <clears throat> So in the context of the Exodus coming out of Egypt, you remember, of course, they came uh, to Mount Sinai. They uh, built the golden calf. And so it was destroyed. The tablets were destroyed. Moses went back up on the mountain. He wanted to see God. So in all that context, verse 6 of Exodus 34, and the Lord passed before him, right, Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, there are words, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Many people have said over the centuries that these two verses are the best. Summary of God's character in all the Bible. And I, I, I think there's a lot of reason to say that. And so it's not surprising then that you have other passages that allude back to this. Well, Psalm 111 and verse 4 is doing that. By saying, Gracious and compassionate is Yahweh, we are reminded of this encounter with God and Moses and how he revealed himself to Moses. And so God is righteous, but he's also gracious and compassionate. And so he's forgiving. He is good. He is merciful and loving. He cares for us. He is kind. He is patient. His covenant love is shown to us. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He's not just righteous and judging sin, but you see his grace In bringing salvation to us. This was seen, of course, especially in the redemption from Egypt. This was seen especially in the work of Christ on our behalf. All of this is undeserved. So, let's praise Yahweh for it. That's the whole whole point here. Alright, now let's look at verse 5. Food he has given to those who fear him. He is remembering forever his covenant. Again, two more uh, lines here. Both of them have three words apiece. Um, So the first one begins with the Hebrew letter tet. So again, I've made these a little bigger for you to see there. This is the T sound, one of the T sounds in Hebrew. And so food he has given to those who fear him. Now, surely God not only gives food to those who fear him, his people, but he also gives food to those who don't fear him. So you think of Acts 17 and other passages that God gives rain and food and so forth uh, on the just and the unjust. But this emphasizes that he gives us food to those who fear him, to his people in particular, right? So most likely then, this is a reference to the manna that was given to Israel in the wilderness. You maybe could include the quail and the water and things like that, but uh, the manna in particular seems to be the emphasis. And remember, those who feared God got manna, and those who didn't went hungry. (laughs) So remember, they had to go out every day and get a certain amount. If they got too much, it went bad. If they didn't get enough, obviously they'd be hungry. And then on Friday, they had to get twice as much because there would be none on Saturday, the Sabbath. And those who feared God did it. Those who didn't, they went out Saturday and they were hungry until they learn their lesson. And so again, this seems to be uh, the emphasis here. <clears throat> now, broadly speaking, of course, God gives us food. And in particular, he gives us food in our journey through the wilderness of life as we're headed to the heavenly promised land. And so he gives us our daily bread. He also gives us spiritual food and communion, and the manna does right anticipate uh, the Lord's Supper in certain ways. So, simply, when you eat, give praise to Yahweh. He is providing for his people, especially, is the emphasis here. Now, in the second line here in verse 5, this one begins with the Hebrew letter Yod. So, this is your Y sound or your J sound. So, if I were to say Yeshua, that's Joshua. Or if I were to say Yerusalem, that would be Jerusalem. So, sometimes the Y is translated as a J. Um, But anyway, here it says, he is remembering forever his covenant. So we talked about his character in verse four. His righteousness in verse three is forever. Now his covenant, he is remembering forever. And so that relationship that he has made with us, his people, the promises that he has made with us, his people, Not just the old covenant, but now the new covenant. He remembers it forever. Now, remember what I've said about this word, remember. It does not mean that God forgets. It may look like he forgets from our perspective, but God never forgets. But the word remember means he is acting upon it. He is calling it to mind, you might say, and then acting upon it. He is acting on the promises he has made. And he does that forever. God is always faithful to his promises to his people. Let's praise Yahweh for this. Now, as I was preparing this, a passage that came to my mind was Romans 8. I'm sure you think of some other passages. But who's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Nothing. God's promises are never forgotten by him. They continue forever. What an encouragement this is to his people, to us. All right, then verse six. The power of his works he has declared to his people in order to give to them the inheritance of the nations. Note again two lines, but note now there are four words apiece in the Hebrew here, so a little different in that way. Remember what I said earlier, we have the word works in verse two. Now we have the word works again in verse six. So it kind of gives us a little bit of a, a section here. And, um, and then we'll see the next one in verses 7 and following. So here, the power of his works are, um, uh, he has declared to his people. All right, now this line begins with the Hebrew letter kaf. So this is your K sound. Um, it can be a soft K, like bach, for example. Um, so the power of his works he has declared. Now, isn't that interesting? Not his words, but his works are, are speaking, are declaring things to us. Now, let, <clears throat> let me bring in the second line right away. This one begins with the Hebrew letter Lamed. So that's your L sound. Uh, in order to give to them the inheritance of the nations. Okay? So clearly that is referring initially here to the conquest, to, to the Canaanites and, and so forth. And so God's power is speaking In the things that he did in redemption. Now think of Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. So the sun, the moon, all these things are are speaking to us about God, the works of creation. Well, so to the exodus, the plagues, all 10 of them, the the crossing of the Red Sea, right? The separation of the waters, the dry land, the destruction of the Egyptian army, even the manna. Mount Sinai, of course, God did speak, but there was also the, the, the thunder and lightning and shaking and such. Uh, while they were in the wilderness, the crossing of the Jordan, the defeat of the Canaanites, all these things spoke, declared the power of God's works. And so those who were alive then, they saw them, they, they heard them, if you will. Now, those of us who live, in this case, you know, 3,500 years later almost— We hear them through words, Um, we don't see them directly, but they are declared to us. They are recounted by later generations because, verse 4, God made a remembrance so that we wouldn't forget. Well, in the same way, we can say this about Christ. The power of his works are declared to us, yes, in the Gospels, in the New Testament, but even again, especially those who were living at the time. And so the birth of Christ, God coming, God's son coming as a baby. Wow, what a message that was, showing his power, Uh, the living of a perfect life. Can you imagine standing beside Jesus who never sinned? I mean, I think it'd make me uncomfortable (laughs) in all my sinfulness. Um, What power it would be to never sin. Uh, The miracles of Christ, the teaching of Christ, Obviously, his death and resurrection, his ascension, all of these things are declaring the power of Christ to save us. Of course, it was written down in the scriptures and we recount it to one another. Uh, Today, we don't believe that God does miracles in the same way as he did before. But when God saves someone, we see a declaration of his power. When somebody comes to faith, that is a powerful message, you might say. And certainly, when Christ comes back, we will see his power displayed. We will enter into the heavenly promised land. And not just the inheritance of some land in the Middle East, but the inheritance of heaven itself. And so for all of these reasons... We are to praise Yahweh. We are called to worship Yahweh for these things. Now, we could say other things, but this is what he is emphasizing here in this psalm. These things are truly great. We delight in them. They are majestic and glorious. We remember them because he has done all of these things to save us, his people. So let's praise him for it not just with our words, but with everything that we have, all that we are, mind, will, and emotion, verse one. All right, well, we're gonna stop there today and we will look at the rest of this, uh, Lord willing, next time. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you again for your word and uh, this Psalm in particular. And we thank you especially, Lord, for who you are, as our God, who is righteous, who is gracious, who is compassionate, among many other attributes. We praise you, Lord, for the works that you have done, your work of creation, your daily works of providence, but we praise you and thank you especially, Lord, for your work of redemption, and as we remember your work of redemption from Egypt, for Israel, we remember also, then, the exodus of Christ, and thus the redemption that we have because of him. We praise you, Lord, for this more glorious covenant, this more glorious redemption through him, and that that we can be a part of it. We can enjoy it. We can delight in it. We can learn about it, as we have done here now these last few moments. And so, Lord, we pray then that you would uh, fill our minds with these truths. May it spur us to uh, make the right decisions to worship you, and may our emotions be moved to gratitude, to joy, to thanksgiving, uh, because of, of who you are and what you've done to save us. And so we praise you, our Lord, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.